Welcome, welcome, guys. We are back for another episode of The Lock-In. I am joined, of course, by our show's resident poker legend, Darrow Kearney. Welcome. Thank you, David. Delighted to be here. My, I, I said on the last show, my sense of time was warped. I thought it was only two days between that and the previous show. It's, it really is warped because it feels like about a year since we interviewed anybody now at this point. Um, I think maybe what it is is we, we've been going on other people's podcasts in the meantime. So now this, we're switching back to doing what we normally do. That's true. That's true. We were, we were very tactical with our appearances on other shows that we did it exactly for our own hiatus. So nobody really knew we were gone. Anyway, look, this week we welcome a great friend of the show. She has been on the chip race four times. This will be her lock in debut. She is New Yorker writer who wrote three bestsellers, including the smash hit The Biggest Bluff. She's, of course, Maria Konnikova. Maria, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you both. And I'm so excited to debut on the lock-in because I've never gotten to go on here before. And I've exactly. always I've always felt like there was something, there was something I felt like it was something personal. You guys wanted me on the chip race, but you're like, <laughs> now there's video and no, 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 I can't, can't have her on the lock-in. It's a totally different experience, but, you know, as usual, and as I said off camera before we started, I'm just so mindful of people's uh, schedules when it comes to their next promotional thing. So obviously we'll 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 mention a little something, something later on anyway. You know, you, that's our kicker back to you. Um, look, it's cameras on for this show. And I noticed you didn't wear your now famous or maybe infamous uh, navy blue vest. Why not? You know, I, I was going to, but it's actually 80 degrees in New York right now. And that was, it, it's just one step too far. But yes, my my infamous blue vest um, does exist and I invited it, but it said that it's waiting for better weather. So maybe it's, it's next probably, time. It's probably, got, it's probably on another show right now, just doing its own show. It's so Probably, <laughs> probably. I mean, that thing's got a life of its own and a mind of its own. <laughs> Look, for anyone who doesn't get that reference, because maybe that's not universal. I need to explain, Maria was on the Netflix show, or is on the Netflix show, Money Explained, wearing a striking vest that got a lot of attention, it must be said. Um, let's let's talk about that, actually. That's a good topic. Get Rich Quick. It's a, an episode on Get Rich Quick, or at least one of them is. And uh, speaking on that show a few weeks ago, uh, you tweeted around that time. It's quite funny how different uh, my intro is, depending on the episode. Get Rich Quick episode. I'm a psychologist. I'm a con art expert. And then gambling episode. I'm a poker player, baby. Uh, that seems like I think it's probably a, a fun place to start. A lot of poker players do think, um, do, do sort of think of poker, I guess, as a get rich scheme uh you kind of see the same stuff maybe going on at the moment with cryptocurrency why are otherwise intelligent human beings who understand huge instances of luck maybe uh withstanding that you have to earn your money uh how come they're so vulnerable to get rich quick schemes pyramid schemes and the people who peddle them yeah that's i mean it, it, it's such a funny question, because if you ask any individual person, they'll say, no, no, you know, I'm not vulnerable to that kind of thing. You know, I, I, I do a good risk assessment, I analyze it, and I, and I only want good opportunities. And the truth is, you know, we're very good at spotting these things when it's happening to someone else. We say, oh, my God, you idiot. I can't believe you just did that. Nobody gets that kind of return. There's, there's something wrong here. But when it's happening to you, all of a sudden, it's not too good to be true. It's kind of what you've always deserved. You, you know how to pick savvy investments. So Thank of you. course, these are your returns. You're brilliant. And it's just, it's so difficult to put yourself 
in that third person mindset and to try to give yourself the advice you would give someone else. And so I think that that's just, that, that's one of the reasons why most people, if not all people are vulnerable to some version of it. Now, I probably won't fall for one of the cons I've written about, but would I fall for something else potentially? Who knows? Maybe. Oh, it's a little scary, but look, Dara, you mentioned being on other people's shows there. Uh, we were both on the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast last week, or I think maybe a week apart. Excellent show. And I do recommend uh, Dara's episode in particular. Uh, during one part of your interview, you spoke about tempering expectation and how poker players usually do better when they set realistic goals. Um We've seen many poker players come and go over the years. We've talked about this many times. Our, our, our three-year system of like, let's do the list now kind of thing. And then once you get to six years, very few of the same people are still around. We've obviously seen many people even rise to the top of the game and then sort of vanish in a hail of bullets a few years later. What advice would you give someone, uh, not a newbie maybe, but someone who has been a poker player for a while, maybe they've been playing for a couple of years, they're fairly confident that they've got a game that can win and they have a foothold. Do you think that there's maybe a uh, core piece of advice you could give them with regard to wealth creation? Uh, yeah. Stay away from bank shares. Um, <laughs> and, uh, no, three my... mentions in three shows, Dara. Are you, is it the anniversary of that fucking Anglo-Irish bank tobacco? <laughs> Anglo-Irish tobacco. Yeah. No, given my, given my track record of investments, um, I think I'm the last person who should be giving any sort of investment advice to anybody. I, I kind of recognize at least that the reason why let's say all my investments haven't been great is I I'm two things which are not good when it comes to investing. I'm lazy and I'm stupid. I like, I don't really want to put the work in. So <laughs> lazy, stupid investors generally don't do well. And I've, on that sense, I have just kind of got what I deserved on, on, on the bank thing. It was literally a case of somebody told me you need to diversify out of poker. So I thought, okay, well, what's the safest thing possible? Like, like nothing could ever happen to, um, oh, bank shares. Yeah. They're obviously the safest thing imaginable. And then a year later, those, those shares were worth exactly zero. Um, and again, it's just because I literally didn't put any effort or, or, or time into it. Whether it would have helped, I don't know, because I mean, like who saw that crash coming back 2007, whenever it was. But um, what I would say to poker players in general, I think I, I don't think I'm qualified to give them investment advice. My only advice would be go off and talk to somebody who actually is um, like similar to what Maria said earlier. You know, I got into crypto very late. And very reluctantly as well. The only reason I got into it is that I had one student who could only literally pay me in Bitcoins. So, so I ended up with a few Bitcoins, which I then spun up on a, on a Bitcoin site. So then I had a lot of Bitcoins. But like Maria said, I was walking around talking like I was suddenly an expert, telling everybody, you know, all these, these Bitcoins, Bitcoins, whatever you call them. They're, they're wonderful. I've made so much money on them. And like, really, it was just good timing, fortuitous timing for me that I happened to get the Bitcoins just before they took off and I happened to do well on the site that I was playing. Um, so what I would say to poker players is like, concentrate on what you know best. I mean, I always told people I made a fortune uh, playing poker and then I lost it all gambling recklessly on bank shares um, because, you know, it is reckless gambling. I literally knew nothing about the bank shares. So stick to what you know. The other major piece of advice I would is as soon as you think you're, you've actually got it made as a poker player that you're, you, you know, you're the, you're the shit, you're probably just before the fall. Um, <laughs> you really have to keep going around with, with the sense of humility thinking that you have to keep working. 
That's that's what your friends are for, Dara. You 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 send me text messages to that effect almost every week. Dara. Dave, don't you be thinking that you're any good? Actually, you haven't sent them for a while. Have you? Am I just a lost cause now? Uh, all those messages are going to Ian Simpson at the moment. <laughs> he's, he's, he's been leading the uh, UOS leaderboard. Tremendous advertisement for positive variants. <laughs> Well, look, Maria, I'm conscious that we've ended up somehow in sort of bankroll management uh, investment uh, portfolio territory here. What I wanted to explore is that dichotomy that I guess you experienced in that moment, that on one hand, you are portrayed as a, well, sorry, you're not portrayed, you are a respectable writer, portrayed as a respectable writer and psychologist. Oh, the shame. Thanks for that, David. <laughs> Thank you. That's the thing you are. But on the other hand, you're portrayed as a degenerate poker player like the rest of us. And uh, even though most of us in poker are not in the spotlight in the way that you are, I think we've all experienced that feeling maybe in our everyday lives uh, of being maybe labelled somewhat. Dara talked, I think, uh, recently or on a, a segment we did for the regular show about his wife cornering an announcer, uh, a running announcer who had uh, referred to him as a pro gambler, explaining to him that he's a pro poker player. And there's a very big difference. Uh, how do you feel when you are, say, judged differently by your peers these days, having immersed yourself so fully in poker? I embrace it. I say, yeah, damn straight. I'm a poker player and that's wonderful. And that's why I understand risk better than you and can actually <laughs> talk about these, these different topics. And you invest in crypto. I'm sorry, who's the gambler here? You invest in the stock market. Who's the gambler here? It's so important to realize that social perceptions of different careers have no bearing on how risky they are, how much of a gamble they are, how much of a skill game they are, how big of an edge it's actually possible to have when it comes to skill. And one of the things that I wrote about in The Biggest Bluff, um, because I just loved that quote and that whole thing so much, is when Danny Kahneman worked with, um, with a big company um, in New York, worked with their traders, looked at their returns, looked at all of this, um, his conclusion was they're gambling. They're not playing poker. They think they're playing poker, but they're actually gambling. So Kahneman understood the difference. And he said, no, all these people who think that they're these very respected professionals, they're actually just playing roulette. They don't understand <laughs> that that's what they're doing, but they are. And the people at the firm said, thank you very much, paid him and you know didn't follow any of his advice or ever invite him back, of course. Um, but to me, you know, I actually think that poker teaches you to understand risk, to assess it if you want it to, right? There are people who treat poker like gambling and they're not going to learn anything. So, but if you approach it with the mindset, I think what Dara said is incredibly important. You have to have a humble mindset and be constantly willing to learn, but you also have to approach it with a strategic mindset and understand that, you know, this is a game that is a game of skill where you can have an edge, where you can learn all of these things um, and where you can improve and where your goal is to just constantly find those edges, get better, um, try to hone your decision-making. And I think that that makes you a much better thinker. So I'm actually thrilled when people identify me with being a poker player and I never tire of explaining to them why that's a very, very good thing and the world would be a better place if more people were poker players. Great stuff. Well, we spoke there a, a little bit about uh, getting rich quickly. Obviously, we were referring to maybe individuals and their uh, tendencies <laughs> in that direction. But there are no doubt some occasions where economic conditions present them 
you know, certain opportunities. And I wrote an article last week about poker sites having potentially overcooked the goose during the pandemic when it came to, a, you know, how they maybe treated newly acquired customers who came because they were probably just like trapped at home or they were old players who came back or they were regulars, weekend regulars who became more than weekend regulars because they had more time or whatnot. Unibet created rake-free home games and slash rake on sit and goes. And I mentioned some of the other positive stories about uh, what thing, what sites had done to maybe not be too greedy, but it still remains that the vast majority of the sites were very greedy when it came to competing for the new money that was coming in to poker during the pandemic, particularly those first few months. And maybe also again, a, a sort of a, a second sort of winter uh, phase that we just went through unlimited re-entries, the longest late registration periods we've ever seen in the game. And I guess the thing that we've talked about a few times on the show, which is the, that notion of the everlasting tournament series, the, the tournament series that just seem to go straight into each other to the point that we never have a break. I know we've spoken about these individually before, but it is my contention that this summer will be the days of reckoning at some level. You know, there's there's vaccinations in arms now. Uh, Bitcoin's had a downturn. That'll probably uh, put manners on some people. And, you know, there's just going to be that tendency anyway, because it's the summer. There's always a little bit of a summer slump in the game. That That's sort of a, a natural little dip. But I think it's going to be much bigger than that. Dara, what's your take on, I guess, what the thesis of my article was, which was sort of that this is going to be especially bad? Yeah, I think it's a reasonably safe prediction um i mean summers do tend to be bad anyway traditionally you know poker is quite seasonal even online poker uh, people play in the long winter months uh, they play in the um <clears throat> they play a bit in the new year uh, and then as as summer comes around they play less and less traditionally we do kind of get a, a mini boost uh, when when the world series is on because it's a bit like wimbledon when wimbledon is on tv and everybody suddenly decides they want to be a tennis player for two weeks um, <laughs> i've done that <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we don't even have that this year. And as you say, there, there, there's definitely fatigue has set in. It, it, it has come in waves. When when the lockdown started, um, way back in the old times, whenever that was, Before um, we, we, we had this incredible two months where just online numbers uh, were through the roof and um, everybody was making hay. And then there was a crash actually last summer, if you remember, um, that Pads talked about, which I think you mentioned in your article as well. Um and then the sites kind of figured, okay, well, what we actually have to do is just keep putting on series. <laughs> so, so you know, stars, stars like in the last few weeks, they had their scoop, then they had their scoop after party, and now there's something called the bounty builder <laughs> series going on. So <laughs> the, the scoop hotel lobby, I think they're calling this one. <laughs> yeah, I feel I, I feel their entire creative department is just sitting around going, what do we call next week's series? Um, just so that people think it's 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 something new. But then on the other hand, you know, maybe this was actually the intelligent response, you know. Maybe Maybe this was always just going to be a short-term boost for online poker. And if the sites hadn't taken, we'd be looking back and we'd be berating them for saying, well, why didn't you make more of an effort when people were actually happy to play? And now they're all gone back outside because they're all vaccinated and running around thinking they're safe from COVID. Um, um, so, yeah, it's, I think it is definitely going to be a very withered summer online for sure. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that because I have played more in the last 15 months than I have at any point in the last 10 years. Dara's looking forward to crushing souls this summer. <laughs> yeah, well, Dara always says things like, oh, I'm looking forward to a little break. And then he's there on Christmas Day, just getting all gobbling up all the Christmas Day money. Of course. <laughs> Christmas, Day is the, well, Christmas Day is the absolute nut day to play because no other sensible <laughs> human is playing on that day. 
<laughs> well, look, Maria, I know you've been sort of detached from all this stuff being outside the online space in the US. Uh, but I was wondering if you had a view on this from a, a psychological standpoint. Let's say someone has a negative experience, like they made a deposit, they read for a tournament, they busted they were immediately asked, do you want to re-enter? They said, I go on. Then they did that maybe a couple more times, rinse and repeat, and then suddenly found that their deposit was gone and they thought that deposit might last them a week and it lasted them a night. Now, that's pretty crap. On one hand, they didn't get much bang for their book. On the other hand, they might genuinely love poker and they might be prone to a bit of compulsive behaviour. So weigh up those two competing forces in one's mind. Yeah, so so it's it's a really, I think it, it's, a difficult question and it's a difficult question for poker sites so i've when i have played online poker you i think it really helps this actually goes back to what uh we were talking about earlier what dara was talking about earlier was kind of bankroll management and you know smart risks to kind of set things ahead of time i do this for live events as well with unlimited re-entry you know how many bullets am i willing to fire in this and I think that it's so important to set that ahead of time, because especially online in the heat of the moment, it's really hard to make those decisions because the pop-up is there and you're like, hell yeah, I want to re-enter. I just got, <laughs> my aces got cracked by pocket twos. Seriously, you know, couldn't it have at least been kings? But, but uh, you know, that, and so in the heat of the moment, you're going to press yes, 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 as long as you have money, unless... I think when you were out of it, psychologically speaking, you know, when you were in a cool state, when you were collected, when you were rational, when you were logical, you kind of decided exactly what you were going to do. And of course, the goal is you have to make that decision and then stick to it. You can't then override yourself when you're in the heat of the moment. And I think this is important advice, not just for recreational players, but for professional players. I have seen so many pros fire something they should not be firing because they're just in the heat of the moment and they get upset and they're like, no, I'm playing really, really well. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're playing like shit. You just busted three <laughs> times in 10 minutes, you know, just stop. And But your self-perception really shifts when you're there. And so I think that that plan ahead of time and trying to think it out, trying to say, okay, you know, how much have I deposited? What does that mean in terms of what I can actually play? Just make some decisions ahead of time or not. If you're there to say, you know, I deposited 50 bucks and I want to spend 50 bucks. That's my theater ticket for the evening theater tickets are more expensive than 50 bucks but 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 you get the idea um fine then do it but maybe in new york maria that would you could go for two nights maybe where we ah, well, yes in new york you can't you can't get half a seat for 50 and uh but if you're you know figure out what your goals are if your goal is just you know tonight i'm gonna splash around have fun and enjoy you know this is this is kind of my fun evening that's very different and i think you'll be in a very different mindset but if you're taking this seriously um i do think it's so important to kind of set limits and make decisions when you're capable of making good decisions not when you're on tilt that's really good advice. I, I better change the subject because I'm I'm uh, I, I'm worried about getting calls from uni about here going, Lappin, we read that article too. Stop being so negative about poker and the prognosis <laughs> for poker. You're an ambassador for the game. God, switch it up, switch it up. So uh, I'm going to talk about something very positive about poker, which is poker freedom. Two weeks ago, Maria, you tweeted, and I'm going to get this right, um, 
The phrase workplace culture is one of the main reasons I've chosen to be self-employed for the last 10 plus years. The other is FaceTime of the non-iPhone variety. So much toxicity in outdated ways of looking at what it means to be productive and valuable. I think that statement speaks to poker players and the type of freedom most of us sort of really crave. I guess a big part of what maybe drew us to poker in the first place, a big part of the lifestyle. Very few successful poker players are lazy or, yeah, I don't think they are. I, did, I, I, was, I was trying to go like, well, no, I'm going to stick to it and at least we'll, we'll, we'll present the question that way. I don't think very many successful poker players are lazy. Actually, they really aren't. And uh, I think they're actually really productive with their time. So with that in mind, in the article you link to... Um, the Washingtonian, that's how you pronounce it, mm-hmm. uh, their CEO, Kathy Merrill, apologized for her comments, suggesting that in-person workers are likely to be treated more favorably than those who would, say, continue to work remotely, which we've all been doing for the last year and a half. Do you think the rest of the world might have cottoned on to what we self-employed people have known for years? Yeah, I mean, I just have always thought that we just have an ass backwards way of measuring what it means to be good or productive. I mean, when I started, you know, my first job out of school was a corporate job and people were measured by, you know, how late do you stay? How early do you get in? You know, that's how committed you are. That's how good you are. I happened to work faster than other people and I would finish by, you know, say three o'clock and then sit around twiddling my thumbs, waiting for other people to kind of do what they needed to do. And I couldn't leave because then my boss would say, oh, well, you know, that Maria, you know, she's so lazy and she's not productive. And it's, oh, I think that the metrics are so backwards and corp- I'm just allergic to corporate speak. And I, I just realized very early on um, that, I was not a very good fit for corporate culture, both for that reason and also because, you know, I hate being told how I have to do something, that this is the way, right? This is the path. You have to do A and then B and then C. If I figure out that D is actually more effective, I just want to do D and you should be happy that I figured that out. And I think that in writing, you know, working for myself and in poker, um, it rewards your own initiative. It rewards creativity. It rewards thinking outside the box. Um, And you can't be lazy. I mean, if you're lazy, you can't be a freelance writer. I mean, you hustle for, you hustle every single day. But I love, you know, just being able to be my own boss, work on my own time, figure out how I work best. And yeah, sometimes I'm not productive and that's fine. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I know exactly how my output is measured and that's in my bank account and in kind of in the other things that I've been able to accomplish. And it's in in my mind, the corporate world would be so much better suited if they would just trust their workers more and trust people's kind of own individual decision-making more. And then of course they, there can be penalties if you don't, perform if you don't actually turn in what you were supposed to if those things are missing okay fine you know this person was lazy (laughs) some people can't work independently some people do need direction i know writers who try to go freelance who are wonderful writers who couldn't do it 
because they couldn't motivate themselves. They needed the deadlines. They needed the office. They needed the structure. Different people, different personalities, different approaches. Everything is great. But at the end of the day, you need to figure out what's right for you. And then if you, it, once you do, you need to find a boss, if you have a boss who's not you, um, who will just value what you're able to do and accommodate that. And I think it's so stupid to, to be saying, oh, you have to be in the office. You have to this, you have to that. And, you know, I'm, but I might as well be just screaming into the void. The corporate culture is, is not going to change. Well, Maria, you did say there that you're allergic to corporate speak and I, and I took you on your word, but then you used the phrase outside the box. So I, I, I'm instantly it's became true. Dubious. It's uh, true. So, 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 uh, David, let's let's pivot to uh, to some outside the box thinking. Let's look look for synergy here, folks. Yeah, um, I'm very interested in what Maria said. I had a talk recently with one of my students, who's a very successful businessman. And he said that at the start of the pandemic, he thought it might be the best thing ever because everybody was working from home, and in his view, people were much more um, productive. But he said now he's kind of coming to see some of the downsides. And in his eyes, there are two different types of people. There are the type of people who can work independently and work much better independently and are much more productive. And if they can be finished by three, that actually motivates them. Um, And then there are the people who just need the structure of the office and they need need that. And and he said, actually, unfortunately, that seems to be most people, at least Mm. in his in his experience, I certainly had the same thing. Like when I was working in corporate culture, I very quickly realized that I didn't want to be an employee. I wanted to be an outside contractor who came in and did work. And then when it was done, left uh, and joined another company. But even within that, there were long periods. For example, I had a contract in IBM where we basically had about an hour's work every day. And then you had to sit at your desk staring at the screen. And this is pre-internet as well. So there's literally nothing to do. Um, and they wouldn't let us go. It was it was absolute torture. Um, and I actually, it, w- it was very high paid, but I actually quit after a few months because I just couldn't take doing nothing. Um, but returning to the idea that there's two different types of people, my, my co-author, Barry Carter, has kind of admitted to me that this has been a very lazy year for him. He's been at his least productive because he does actually realize, he realizes now, he didn't realize before that he needs the structure and just having the whole day to fill it's kind of stuff drips by and um, that's a long winded way of saying that's why our third book isn't out yet <laughs> i was gonna uh, well, you beat me to it Ari's a lazy ass, basically. no it, i mean and i think why not accommodate everyone right why not say that it's equal whether you're in the office or not how are you most productive i've always been most productive working from home i don't like to be distracted i don't like people to you know interrupt my train of thought every three seconds by coming over and asking something or saying something, you know, I, I actually work best by myself. (laughs) And, but that's, as you say, Dara, some people work best with other people and need that community to thrive. And it's just not one size fits all. So why don't we stop pretending that it is one size fits all in either direction and let people work however they want to and let them be judged by what they're able to produce in the end, at the end of the day. Very well said again. Well, I am going to move things over to another of your specialist subjects, Maria, uh, that of uh, con artists, uh, a nice quote of yours from Money Explained. Uh, Evolutionarily speaking, we are wired to trust, but it also means we are susceptible 
to bad actors. Um, that reminded me of the first time I actually came across you ever, which was when you appeared on Real Time with Bill Maher. You were talking about con artists and Bill clearly saw the opportunity to make it all about Trump, which in fairness, I, I guess you sort of stepped into that moment in a way, the timing of your book made that very prescient, made that sort of uh, idea very relatable to, to, to what you had uh, spoken about in the book that was that was the worst freudian slip i ever had on live television when he asked me if trump was a con artist and my response was yes he's a psychopath <laughs> and, and then i just said oh shit but <laughs> i meant to say yes he's a con artist but please continue i didn't want to interrupt you. that's my most <laughs> memorable moment from that interview absolutely was absolutely well with that in mind uh i come now to anna kite uh, about 10 days ago, and I'm going to do my thing where I look down at my uh, notes here, because when dealing with these types of people, you have to uh, re report on everything accurately. Uh, we still haven't been sued. I just want to point out uh, over a year and no one's come after us yet. That's, uh, that's just because nobody knows where we're based. <laughs> that's, that's we're, 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 Iceland, right? We're in the cloud. <laughs> that's, that's, Iceland? That's, yeah, it's Iceland, Iceland or, or Mali, one of those. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, about 10 days ago, according to a report in the New York Times, Survivor contestant, I'm not going to call her former bro, because she wasn't. She was not. Uh, Anna Kai was part of a plot to spy uh, on intelligence officials from the Trump administration. The newspaper claimed that according to documents and people involved in the operations, an organization called Project Veritas, which actually is quite well known, uh, recruited Kite as part of a larger group of women that were tasked with taking FBI employees on dates. Uh, I guess you could call that a sort of... A right, excuse, excuse my reaction. Just every time I hear this story, I, I can't help myself. Wild. Also so predictable. Like, what could go wrong? <laughs> And uh, anyway, on those dates, they use secretly uh, secret devices to record them, hopefully belittling President Trump, which would then obviously help Trump undermine any investigations going on into mm. him. Kite was apparently one of several women living in a house in the Washington, D.C. area rented by Project Veritas. And she was identified by a former employee of Project Veritas and another person as one of the women who had been involved with these types of operations. Why is this relevant to poker, uh, given the fact that I've made it very clear that she definitely wasn't a real poker player? I think she cashed about 12 grand over about four years. Uh, I think you're giving her actually ago. too much money. If I remember <laughs> it's correctly, even it's even maybe. less. Yeah, It might even be less. But since then, she has gotten very involved in Christianity uh, mm. and then the Trump movement. Um, mm. She blocked a lot of poker players along the way, myself included, after last June I tweeted, the reality is Anna Kite glommed onto the poker community. Sadly, she is glomming onto a religious community now. The one community in which she does sincerely belong, though, is the MAGA gang, a con artist drawn to con artists. That's probably deserving of a block anyway. I, I, I hope that was worth it. Uh, I must point out that last Friday, Kite acknowledged working for Project Veritas, but refuted the claims made by the New York Times. She also said that she tweeted... Uh, she also tweeted that the newspaper is being sued by Project Veritas and she will be filing lawsuits against the publication as well. She denied ever being investigated by the FBI. Maria Konnikova, expert in the character and modus operandi of con artist. What say you? I don't think she's a con artist. I just think she's an idiot, um, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. So so here's the here's the. Um... And I say that now I'll be blocked as well if she hears this. By the way, I'm you. You pronounce her last name so nicely. Um, as, <laughs> well, you got to be very careful I, with that name. And too. I and I actually say it in my in my head as Anna Hate um, oh, because you could. I, I had a different four letter <laughs> word in mind. So so um, I think I, I, either one works, <laughs> but. 
so so what I actually mean by that is what a con artist is is someone who misrepresents kind of their own, their motivations to to get something and who has malicious intent and deceives knowingly. And I think that you know she not all I don't think that all MAGA, you know, supporters are con artists. Trump is for sure. We actually have proof of this because he's actually committed fraud. Um, and <laughs> that that act, that exists before. I used to always caveat with, well, as far as we know, blah, blah, blah. But now there's actual proof. So we've got that. But his supporters are true believers, I think, for the most part. They're not con artists themselves. They're just kind of think about, you know, the cult leader and then the cult members. The cult leader, oftentimes con artist who doesn't actually believe the the bullshit that he's spewing or she's spewing followers true believers they actually they actually take the message to heart i think she's much more that and with the project veritas you think about it you know there's actually a huge overlap between the spy world i'm not trying to equate this to actual spycraft but that's what they were trying to do um and the con artist world which is you know is it is it legitimate or not right the con artists are going outside the law they're trying to kind of they're trying to do things for their own personal gain and here she's doing it not for her own personal gain but for this bigger cause so it's more it's more kind of of a spy mentality than it is a con artist mentality. So I would put her in in that bucket, um, which doesn't make her any less destructive. It might make her more destructive. But I also want to tell you, totally switching gears with her con artist thing, um, that I played with her um, a number of years ago at a charity poker event having no idea who she was and or, or why she was there. But there's a photograph of me, Eric Seidel and Anna at the same table, like smiling next to each other. And, and it's in retrospect, I was like, wait, what that person? <laughs> we'll be using that image to promote the show. You can be sure. Excellent. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> well, Dara, look, obviously uh, the, the, the way uh, Maria has tried to portray Anna there is more uh, one of the women living on the ranch uh, and not Charles Manson himself. <laughs> what say you, sir? Yeah, well, when you sent me the notes for the show in advance, <clears throat> I actually thought it was Anna we were getting on the show because uh, <laughs> you know, all those uh, all those poker writer uh, chicks who come from Russia and their second name. They're all the same. I get them all mixed up, but so very, very pleasantly surprised to find it was actually Maria we had on, we're having on the show. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely go along with the idea that, 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 that she's more of an idiot than a con artist. And I actually think poker does kind of draw those people in. Um, it's one of those things where almost anybody can claim to be a poker pro and you don't really have to produce receipts for it. We all know, fairly high profile examples going around saying that they're poker pros. And then when you drill down and you look at their hand mob and you go, yeah, you've got 200 K in cashes over 10 years on about half a million in buy-ins. You don't play online. Uh, you don't play cash. So like, how are you a pro? But you know, people make these claims, nobody really tests them. So I think poker kind of draws those people in anyway. A lot of them don't last very long, obviously. Um, and they, they yeah. move on to, to their next hustle uh, as Anna has done. But yeah, I'm, 
as thrilled as I am to have Marie on the show, I, I was kind of looking forward to grilling Anna about the whole, um, so what did you actually say to the FBI agents to try and get them to to, to, to open up to you? Or do, or do, let's be honest. But anyway, that's about, I'm probably already liable to spend suggesting do anyway. Look, we will finish with a nice story, which I, I think maybe in some way brings us full circle. Last week, science writer and poker player Alex O'Brien published an article with the BBC entitled How a 10K Poker Win Changed How I Think. She came on the show. If you haven't seen it, check out the last episode of the show. She's at the top of the show. It's a great interview. Uh, Needless to say, it got a lot of attention in the poker world as it told the story of Alex's win in the Dan Bilzerian free roll back in December and how that sort of catapulted her into the spotlight. She didn't really realise what she was getting herself in for, I think. Um, And, you know, also prompted her to get uh, a lot of big names in the game to reach out to her and help prepare for the heads up uh, against the GG ambassador, which is great. Uh, her book, uh, The Truth Detective Practical Tools for Everyday Thinking, uh, sorry, Everyday Critical Thinking, is due out in December, sorry, in January or February, I think, 2022. Maria, your book, The Biggest Bluff How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. You brought in your areas of expertise, psychology, behaviorism, your previous studies of con artists and Sherlock Holmes. Obviously, with Alex, we're going to get a kind of scientific background. That's sort of her wheelhouse. I'm interested to know in what, well, firstly, how did you receive that piece? What did you think when you read it? Oh, I think it's great. You know, every single time we get someone who is, you know, smart and thinking, to understand the potential of poker and to kind of share that with the world. I think it's wonderful. And I was so glad that she was going to be the one to challenge Bilzerian. I mean, what a, what a wonderful, wonderful piece of karmic justice between her and Vanessa Cade. I mean, (laughs) yeah, no, it is is pretty sweet. Well, I wanted to sort of drill down into, to something that I was genuinely having a, a coffee there two mornings ago and thinking about and thought, okay, I have to ask you this. One of the aspects of your books, all of the books really combined, is how they can all sort of be distilled down into treatises on control. Uh, Sherlock Holmes controls his environment by seeing everything, noticing all the little details and making his deductions. Con artists control their environments by sort of conjuring a new reality and then they make everyone else believe in it. As the creators of that reality, they're the masters at some level and, and I guess yeah mastery is something you even put in, in in the title of the biggest bluff so clearly all of that is is baked into to what you're studying I suppose uh, is what I'm trying to get at and is that something you very consciously do is a study of control something that you feel will maybe continue to you know be a through line in other works um no, not in terms of my books, it was not conscious, but it is. I mean, if you look at what I did um, for my psychology PhD, it was on the illusion of control and self-control. So so it's definitely something that is always on my mind. You know, what are what are the limits of what we can control and and what's the nature? I think the other theme here is kind of what's the nature of belief, because there's kind of a there's an overlap there. And oftentimes our beliefs um The illusion of control comes from believing that we control more than we actually do. We fall for con artists because it's, it's, it's about belief. They, they get us to kind of buy into um, what their version of the world is. And we think we're in control. They give us perceived control and agency, but we don't actually have it. They're the ones who are in control. So in, you know, so I do think it's something that's just a, 
a through line of my my own thinking and something that I feel is incredibly important. Um, but I, I never consciously say, okay, you know, this is how I'm going to weave this theme in or that theme in. Um, and I have no idea what my next book is going to be. I have other projects that are not books um, in the works, but in terms of the next book book, I don't know. And I don't know um, how control will play into it. But, you know, in one sense it will, because I think chance and th this kind of theme of, of the role that chance plays in our lives is something that um, I think is just a constant theme of life. So of, of course it's a constant theme of what I write because I, I write about life in a way and I write about people. And the reason I studied psychology was because I was fascinated by what makes us who we are, why we think the things we think, why we do the things we do, what, what drives us. Um, and I think that that is one of the reasons that I love writing as well. It's, it's kind of another way to explore that and to explore motivation and to explore people. Um, and that's, you know, that's what drives me. Um, you know, what's, so my next book, you know, when I find the right story, when I find the right people, when I find kind of the, the right narrative, that's, that's when I'll know what it is and the themes will come out as they will. Well, Dara, turning to you on this subject, I suppose, that, that, that notion of control, I have always thought about your running and obviously the, the nature of the kind of running. I can't believe I'm actually teeing up a running story here, but here I go. I usually don't have to tee them up. Dara will provide them anyway. Um, how much do you feel like even that activity, that activity of doing something for that many hours, is it a sort of, um, is it a, sort of a response to that? chaotic nature of the world thing that that Maria talked about that uh, you know at least when you're just like putting one foot in front of the other and that sort of you know almost endless repetition of those really long runs that you do is is there something about that that's sort of in this same wheelhouse yeah I mean you focus on the control aspect of the true line between Anna's different books and and, and now you're trying to impose it on me sometimes I think that says more about you called me Anna you, you definitely Anna. did just call me Anna <laughs> Sorry, we I'm have sorry. to call you out. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I think that says more about the person finding the pattern rather than necessarily the data. I, I think yeah. as humans, we do sort of fit narratives onto data that's often completely random anyway. I mean, there are lots of different true lines you could put on Anna. Sorry, Maria's books. Um, uh, you could nicely done, nicely done. You could say that it's uh, it, it's 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 all on sort of the importance of critical thinking um, and and sort of thinking for yourself, independent critical thinking, or you could say it's a gradual path to degeneracy from the sort of uh, respectability of Sherlock <laughs> to Connor. I love that. I love that, Dara. That's <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. I mean, for myself, I've always felt it's not really about control in terms of the different things that I've gotten interested in. I do just genuinely think I've gotten interested in them because they're all things that the harder you work at, the better you get. And they're, 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 they're very, uh, it's, you know, running is a real meritocracy. Poker is a real meritocracy. Um, I don't like being in situations where my success or failure depends on the efforts of other people. Here, <laughs> here, famous, here, 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 <laughs> There's a famous story about the 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 guy who runs our uh, the, the the running club that I was in. He was a 
in his in his teens, he was the captain of his school rugby team, and they were the worst rugby team uh, in Dublin. And he said after one loss, he kind of looked around the dressing room and saw that he was the only one who actually gave a shit about how bad they were and how badly they'd lost. And he said he decided at that moment that whatever he did, it wasn't going to be something which depended on the efforts of others. So he ended up becoming an Olympic marathon runner instead. Um, and I, that's really, I think, the camp I fall in, in, into. I don't want to have to rely too too much on others. Obviously, in recent years, you know, I've worked with you, David, on a, on a lot of this content stuff. <laughs> that's because, for all your failings, and there are very, very many failings, you, you are actually you are actually a very, very hard worker as well. Um, oh wow! I was so waiting for I was waiting for the good points there. Oh, it was nice. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I do. Like, I do know I can trust you on this stuff. Um, but you know. Most of the other people that I've tried this kind of stuff with down the years have let me down at some point, and, and I'm I'm an incredibly unforgiving person. <laughs> May I uh, recommend an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson? It's called Self Reliance. <laughs> I think I think you'd enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. But I actually I, I agree with with a lot of that. I was always the the person in school who hated group projects because I always felt like if I wanted it to be good, I just had to do everything. Um, and the funny thing is actually though, when you look at psych studies, when you have adults do these sorts of group projects, every single one has the perception that they did more than their share of work, every person in a given group. And it's just the, it's the funniest psychological thing, but I swear that in my case, I really did too. <laughs> that, that's fucking parenting too. Like Jesus Christ, like that, that, that's every day of your life when you have a child. It's like, well, I, I remember all the things that I did to contribute to this little person's growth and you know safety and everything else so yeah you, you do only focus on on your own stuff so you always kind of remember the dishes you cleaned of course of <laughs> course but but I I fully I completely agree with you um in terms of wanting to do something where it's as as a closely connected to your own kind of effort and and your own what you put into it as possible and I will say you know the one thing that the one caveat I will put to what you said Dara is that neither poker nor running is actually truly a meritocracy right they they get closer than other things but I do I do think it's important to realize that nothing's a true meritocracy in life yeah um, you know from from the moment of birth um, oh, yeah. but, but poker, I don't run. Um, and poker is what I've discovered kind of the, in terms of the different areas I've seen, it's the most meritocratic because, you know, there you can, anyone can play. And if you're good, then, you know, eventually barring any horrible things happening, um, you'll be able to play and make a name for yourself and actually progress. And in the co corporate world, taking this full circle to where we started, that's not true. There are biases. There are certain things, you know, people don't like you. They can say, okay, you're, you're out of here. In academia, where I was for a while, holy shit, the biases just affect everything. Do you get a grant? Does someone who doesn't like you sit on the grant committee? No. Okay, you're, you're done. Even if your research proposal is the best one, you're not going to get the grant because that person has a personal grudge against you. Other people make decisions on your behalf and control how your career progresses regardless of the effort you put in. And to me, that's just enraging. Mm. Yeah, corporate culture is particularly bad on that. <clears throat> I mean, I worked as a sort of a corporate employee for the first few years of my career, and you saw I saw so many examples of that. The, the ultimate was one guy who actually joined the first company that I joined at the same time in the same position, sort of entry-level coder, as we would call them these days. And 
he was absolutely terrible at his job. Like he was unbelievably bad. He had absolutely no aptitude for it. So we ended up having to do his work for him. And then after a few months, we went to our boss and said, like, this is ridiculous. We basically are a man short here. We need you need to find something else to do with this guy. So what they did is they promoted him so that he was our supervisor. So his job was basically to fill up all the forms saying what, what, what work we were doing, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it went to his head and he decided now he was, he was better than us. And he was, he started ordering us around. So we had to go back to the real boss again and go like, we can't be having this. This, this, is, this guy's just too annoying. Get him away from us or we're all going to leave. So what they did is they promoted him again. So that he, he was over the, the sort of like, uh, bottom level managerial staff um, and we didn't have to deal with them then therefore we, we, we had an actual rational human being telling us what to do that's I mean th- this is like an Aesop's fable <laughs> for sure <laughs> no it, it got worse and worse he literally in, in the space of a year they kept bumping him up until eventually they invented a role for him uh, d- corporate director of something it, the job the job didn't really exist but he was just sitting in an office all, all day doing nothing and then around that time an American multinational decided they'd set up their European headquarters in Ireland and he applied for the job saying look I've had this incredible meteoric rise to my first <laughs> job I'm now the corporate director for something and they hired him they, they, they hired him to head up the, uh, the their, their European headquarters now they pulled out of Ireland after two years. So, so you don't need me to tell you how that went. But he was, he was a classic example of like, he was so incompetent at everything he did that he just kept getting promoted. Dunning Kruger and his, and his thing yes. and, and corporate culture. Yeah. At the beginning of that story, Dara, when it was all about uh, all these people doing all the really hard work and, and and sort of going to their boss and saying, we have to get this guy. I was sure we were talking about Ian Simpson. I was sure you had gone full circle <laughs> and we were back on, on Ian. Um, look, before we go, we do always, and we love it very much, Dara, we get a strategy nugget from you. Can you please tell us this week's strategy nugget? Okay, well, again... Uh, <laughs> Um, I did give Maria the excuse that I was just out of bed before we started. and uh, You did, you did. I and, and I still remember that. That's why you keep calling me Anna. We'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll just... Uh... It's, not, it's, it's not Alzheimer's, honest. Um, we So uh, yeah, again, zero work has gone into this, but I did think recently <laughs> that... In That's terms how much mindset, we value you out there. Uni, Unibet audience. This is... Fucking audience. Dara got out of bed and just thought... I'll fucking throw this together. Go on, Dara. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm also going to interrupt you, Dara, to say that that's your quote for your next book and also for the podcast, that you, the quote you give yourself, zero work has gone into it. <laughs> Dara O'Kearney. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I realized recently that a lot of the coaching that I do, uh, and Andrew Broker said something similar recently too, it's, it's, it's more about counseling than actually teaching them poker and just... Uh, but one thing which keeps coming up with my students is they get very upset about bad beats, which happen online, which apparently happen online more than in live poker, which I guess. <laughs> they happen They happen more in whatever format you're currently playing. That's Absolutely. the way it works. They happen less on Unibet. Just want to point that out. Very few uh, bad beats. They right, never happen right. on Unibet, uh, unless, unless Simpson's involved. Simpson has somehow wormed his way into the code. But yeah, my so my advice to the moms is like, if you are playing eight, 12 tables, whatever number you're playing, and you feel that a bad beat on one is going to upset you just do what I do which is I actually don't look at runouts uh once I've made my decision to move all in and I've clicked the all in button I just move on to the next table and I don't look back to see what's happening on that table and if that table disappears I don't know whether my kings got busted by twos I don't know whether my kings ran into aces I don't know what happened so I can't I can't really feel aggrieved it's just something that I have to deal with 
it's also something I do. I've, I've actually tried doing live sometimes in very, very high stress situations when I'm all in is I just don't look at the cards coming down. Um, you can always you just leave the, the table and, and then you come back 10 minutes later to see if you still have chips or not. <laughs> yeah. Or you can just look at the reactions of other people and then you'll kind of get a sense of how it's going. If they go, Ooh, you know, and like, okay, now there's lots like, of cards, which is giving him more outs apparently. Or if, the, or if there's general uproar, you know, well, he's actually pulled the head now. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I think that's a useful trick if like me, you're a deeply flawed human being and you don't want to actually do the work of tackling the underlying issues. Great stuff. Dara, for something you threw together, it was hardly, uh, something people at home could tell. They would have assumed you'd been working on that all night. Uh, no, no, I do like that piece of advice. Before we go, Marianne, I know you've only got a couple of minutes left because you're a very busy person. Unlike most people we do on the show, we were saying beforehand. We might, we might be a bit Rainer in, in the next 15 minutes. We, Rainer, we have 15 minutes now if you want to come back. <laughs> we, can, we can bring some more people. Rainer was on the last show and at the end he was kind of like, oh, is it over? Oh, can we can we talk for a bit longer? <laughs> I think, look, that's that's kind of, I don't that's mean to wonderful. Mock, that's very normal at the moment. It's, we're all craving a bit of company and a bit of contact, uh, but not Maria. Maria is just busy and she's got like seven other people to talk to. So uh, we've got about, I've used up two of the five minutes, but anyway, I want to, I just want to point out, Maria has a paperback edition of The Biggest Bluff coming out in just a couple of weeks time. And I know you have a very special launch party planned with the great 538 journalist, Nate Silver. Can you tell us all about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is out June 8th in the US. Um, I think the same day in the UK and Europe, but I'm not sure. Anyway, um, it's coming out soon. And I have a few really cool launch events. Um, the first, as you say, is with Nate, who is wonderful human, great thinker, always challenges and kind of in inspires me to think differently, um, you know, and is someone who's never afraid of an argument, which I think is very rare these days, um, and who's just never afraid to kind of poke and to see and to see what happens. And he actually has a book on uh, that he's working on right now, which is also about the world of gambling and decision making. So I haven't seen it, but I'm very excited um, to to see that. I think it'll be out in a, in a year or a few years, something like that. Um, Tell them I'm doing our show, Maria, when you're there talking. I will. Just Happy go, to. Oh, do you know what? All those other podcasts are rubbish. I'll point you to the good Of one. course. Of course. Um, don't go on the chip race. Go on the lock-in. Yes, I will. I will definitely tell him that. If you want to row, <laughs> we'll give him a row as well. Whatever he's up for. <laughs> um, and then I'm doing a few other events if people can't make the Nate Silver one. I'm doing one with Michael Ian Black. So that'll be very different. It'll be more, I think, more, more driven by Michael's sensibility, which is as a comedian, obviously, but he's also someone who's a really deep thinker and has a great book that came out last year called A Better Man, um, Letter to His Son, um, which I loved. And doing another one with Josh Foyer for Poker Players. He's the guy who wrote um, Moonwalking with Einstein. Um, and you know I, that's a book that really affected um, how I thought about a lot of things. Um, memory is important. Um, and it was... Uh, it was it was one of the most fun psychology books I've ever read. Doing some stuff on Clubhouse because these days apparently everyone does some stuff on Clubhouse. Anyway, there'll be there'll be a bunch of things going on um, that week of June. We're not on Clubhouse. What's Clubhouse? Dara, do you know what this Clubhouse thing is? I can send you Clubhouse invites if you guys would like to oh, join Clubhouse. Yeah, I think I yeah I think um, <laughs> one of the female poker players ran an event on Clubhouse recently, and that was the first mm -hmm. time I'd ever heard of Katie Stone. Mm -hmm. I think it was. Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. Okay, yes, yeah, yes. It's it's the cool person's club. You need to be named Anna to be to be asked to join. 
or at least from Russia with the second name that starts with K. Mm. Okay, look, we wish you all the uh, riches and spoils to come in because it's a wonderful book. I, I guess paperbacks probably sell more copies, do they? So maybe this is where the real money comes in. Uh, maybe I you, don't you, know. You get over the threshold with the, the people who funded the book and gave you the advance, and now you're getting now you're getting the real dollar dollar bills, y'all. I hope you make. <laughs> Um, and uh, and yeah, no. Look, I hope uh, obviously another bestseller uh, you already have on your hands. I hope it sells even more, and it's a, a hugely successful release. Congrats on that! Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. It's always so much fun talking to the two of you. I wish we had more time. I wish I could pull a Reiner and say, you know, can't we can't we keep talking a little more? You say that, but then you were very specific. I can. Give I was. You an hour. No, I'm sorry. I do have another interview. I want a break as well. <laughs> yeah, and if Dara calls me the wrong name I might even leave after 50 minutes that's that's it <laughs> I'm uh I'm, I'm very forgiving yeah, I, I'm, no, I'm such a I'm such a kind person really I'm gonna say is Anna, Anna wouldn't have run off on us she would have she would have been here trying to get us to say bad things about Trump which wouldn't have been very difficult and she'd been recording secretly even though it's zoom and it's actually being recorded yeah, <laughs> yeah we'd have had a backup recording just in case something had gone wrong with the phone. Yeah, like, oh, sorry the zoom recording messed up could we have that secret recording which we weren't supposed to know about we but we know you actually exactly have. <laughs> look it has been great fun chatting to the pair of you i really appreciate it if you are playing poker this weekend hop in the uni better open is on sunday monday uh 6 p.m uk 7 p.m uh central european time if you fancy jumping in the softest 1k that we know of or that uh, you know before the slump this, it, the slump hasn't that i predicted earlier hasn't happened yet it's it's booming until this weekend and then you can forget about poker for a while guys thank you so much really appreciate it until next time Bye-bye. Bye-bye.